Oh Lord, we thank you. There is nobody like you. Lord, you're here today. And you want to minister to us as your children. So Lord, we thank you for your presence in our lives. Lord, thank you that you're so close. You're not distant with us, Jesus. Lord, your word declares you're an ever-present help in times of trouble. So Lord, Lord, we thank you that you are ministering to your people right now. Ministering, healing broken hearts. Mending broken minds. Bringing hope to those that may be really despondent at the moment. Reassuring us that you are our God. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. Oh Lord, we love you. Thank you, Lord. You know, God wants to minister to each one of us. I love that about Jesus. I love that he is such a personal God. Just imagine it. King of kings. Creator of the universe. And we have an audience with him. So I just pray as I was ministered to today during the worship that you would have you've been ministered to as well. And just keep your hearts open to receive the ministry of the Holy Spirit into your lives. Because he has a way of reaching into the core of our being, doesn't he? He satisfies us where nothing else can satisfy us. And he wants to give us what we have need of today. And he promises to do that in our lives. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, we looked a few weeks ago as what does it mean to be a Christian? What is it all about? When we strip it back, I love that Matthew 5 gives us the nitty gritty facts about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue and he deals with us from the inside out. He challenges us in terms of our thoughts, in terms of our desires, in terms of our actions and in terms of our words as he delivers this message on the mount. And we're going to read from Matthew 5 this morning. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
two weeks ago, we began looking at the Beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes, these kingdom characteristics that flow out from our lives. And primarily, we saw the first four Beatitudes focus on our relationship with God and our complete dependence on him. We said that we were to be desperate, not proud and arrogant, but recognizing our complete need for him in our lives because we are spiritually bankrupt. We come to God with nothing. There's nothing in and of ourselves that we bring that has any desire to God. We come to him bankrupt and we need him as our savior. And we need to remind ourselves of that daily, that he is the one that we lean on and he is the one that we are dependent on and are desperate for. We then said two weeks ago that we need to be grieved. When we look at the sin in our lives, and in the sin that's happening in this world, it brings us to a place of mourning. And in that mourning, we actually throw ourselves into the arms of God to find hope and refuge and comfort in him. We thirdly looked at the fact that we are to be broken. Just like a horse is broken to follow the leading of its master, so too are we to allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide our lives and that we choose to submit to the reign and kingship of God and his control for our lives. And when we submit fully to him, not going our own way, doing our own thing, being like a wild stallion running around in the field. But when we allow our lives to be controlled by God and we allow our lives to be led by him, this transformation has great impact, not only for our lives, but for the lives of others around us as well. People see what we display from our lives, a humility, a gentleness of heart, a patience, and a long-suffering, and a consideration before others, as we are meek, as we are humble. And then fourthly, we looked at the fact that we are to be hungry for God, to know more of him, to be hungry, to be like him, for our lives to be sanctified by him as he changes us and as we get to be made more holy as we allow the work of the spirit to take place in our lives. So this morning, we're going to pick up from where we left off and continue to build on the foundations that we put down two weeks ago. And we're going to look at how this Jesus lifestyle is outworked in the relationships that we have with others. So my fifth point today is from verse 7, and it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Would you agree that we all have a genetic code, characteristics and attributes that are passed down to us from our parents? Yeah? Well, knowing that this is the case, have you ever paused to consider that when we become followers of Jesus, God says that we become his children. And just like children have their parents' DNA, 
God, when we accept him, we become adopted as his sons. He actually puts his DNA into us. And the Bible calls it a new nature. Corinthians 5 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Out with the old, in with the new. How exciting is that? As God's children, he places his DNA in our lives, which means our whole outlook and the whole way in which we view our lives and the way in which we live our lives changes. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. It says this, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. We are called to be imitators of God. And nowhere do we imitate God more than when we show mercy. When the Lord instructed Moses to come to Mount Sinai with two tablets, ready to hear from him, it says in Exodus 34, then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord. The God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger. I'm filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. Those aren't words or pronouncements you often hear from kings and queens and governments, are they? And yet the king of the universe, as he meets Moses on Mount Sinai, says he's the God of compassion and mercy. So what is mercy? Essentially, it is compassion and kindness and forgiveness. It's a pretty big lineup of characteristics. Compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. In and of their own right, they are massive. But yet there's something even more special about mercy that makes these qualities even more incredible. So what is so special about mercy? It's this. It gets given when it's not deserved. It's easy to give people things when they deserve it. But God gives us things we don't deserve. God gives us something, his compassion, when we don't deserve compassion. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us what we don't deserve. He gives us his kindness when sometimes we don't deserve his kindness. He gives us his forgiveness when we don't deserve it. And we've read in Ephesians that Paul says that we are to imitate Christ. So how does God's mercy look for in our lives? I love the passage in Lamentations 3.22 that says this. 
The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercy never ceases. Great is his faithfulness. His mercies begin afresh each morning. I've got to be honest. I think I just cried for about half hour reading these scriptures when I was preparing this. Because it hit me. It hit me about my God and his love for me and his care for my life. And I just, it broke me. It just broke me again afresh about the God that I serve every single day. His mercy is there for me. His mercy is there for you. He withholds from us what we deserve and he gives to us what we don't deserve. And he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He does, his hands aren't twisted behind his back. He chooses to lavishly give you and I his mercy. And he says there's no end to it. It's not like a subscription that you sign up to and it finishes in 30 days or a year. And you take it for all you can. No, there's no end to this mercy of God for our lives. And yet when we read this passage in Matthew 5, let's just go back and track and see what it says. Blessed are the merciful. So actually Jesus is now talking to you and I about how we are to act. We've just read about how God's mercy is outpoured in our lives. But actually Jesus is not telling us to receive, to receive, to receive. He's saying, no, no, you've got to give. Blessed are the merciful. Just like God builds a bridge to us with his mercy, so we are to build a bridge towards others with the mercy that we extend to them. So how do we do this? Well, one of the meanings of the word mercy that we just looked at is compassion and kindness. When Jesus was moved with compassion, he changed things. Compassion causes us to move. We see Jesus healed the sick. We saw Jesus fed the multitude. We saw that he raised the dead when he was moved with compassion. And for us, mercy towards others will cause us naturally to want to help practically. Just like the Good Samaritan. He couldn't walk by because he saw that somebody was in need and he had to do something to help. That's what mercy does. It extends compassion towards the plight of somebody else. It so longs to be kind to somebody who needs kindness displayed in their lives. We can't just walk by and turn a blind eye to things. We're to, we're, God wants us to be moved to do something. So how does this look in our lives? I just wrote down a few things. The list is exhaustive. It's about being a friend to somebody who's lonely or on the fringes. It's maybe about helping somebody who is struggling or who is sick. It's encouraging and walking the journey with a person who's suffering from grief, anxiety or pain. Maybe it's to offer to help somebody with their shopping who's housebound or to babysit for a single mum who just could do with a little bit of breathing space. 
Maybe it's about supporting somebody and standing by them when they've been unjustly wronged. Like I said, this list is just a few things. The list is endless. But actually, the outflow of mercy from our lives, it touches and changes people. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to touch and change people. Because of what he's done in our lives, we can so freely dispense that mercy to the lives of others to change and help them in their journey. But secondly... We are to be merciful to those who have wronged us. Yeek. This one is all about forgiveness. And this is the rubber hits the road kind of talking that we try to sweep under the carpet. Okay, when we are cheated or hurt by somebody, our natural reaction is to give them what they deserve. However, this is not the reaction that we are called to live, have as followers of Jesus. But here's the thing, forgiveness is not easy, is it? In fact, forgiving can be extremely hard. C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> forgiveness does not mean approving of what somebody did. It doesn't mean excusing it or denying it or pretending that you're not hurt. But rather, we are aware of what the other person has done, yet we choose. Yet we choose to forgive. That feels like a really big thing to ask, doesn't it? And I've got to be honest, sometimes I like to subscribe to um, the law of Moses. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You whoop me, I'm going to whoop you back. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. Sometimes that feels really good, doesn't it? But here we go again with Jesus showing us his upside down kingdom. It's no longer eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It's about extending mercy to those who don't deserve it. Extending forgiveness to those who have done something wrong and hurt us. And the thing we need to understand is that mercy is a divine quality. It is God's character. It is who he is. And we can't do this in our own strength. Yet we can do this because now we are his kids, his children with his DNA, which is what enables us to live in mercy. It enables us to walk this out. We get his nature and the Holy Spirit enables us to live this on a day-to-day -day basis. So how often do we have to forgive? You know, when I think about forgiving others, I think, okay, once I can do, twice I can do, three times is a push, but Lord, you won't be expecting me, surely, if they keep doing things wrong, surely you're not going to be expecting me to give more than like three times or something, because they've got to learn, haven't they? Well, Jesus actually addresses it, and it's just as well he does, because we know, he knows as his kids, we're great at finding loopholes. 
doesn't he? He knows that we will try to slink out at something. So I love that the Bible is just really clear. So that we can't go, oh, I didn't realize. Sorry, Jesus. I thought three times was enough. So this is what Matthew 18 says. It says, then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Pretty generous. No. Not seven times, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. What is Jesus saying? He's like, Peter, this is all about unlimited forgiveness. And that is painful. And that feels unfair. It really does. Yet, the thing that helps me to gain perspective in this is to remember God's generosity towards me. I'm so thankful that God does not place a limit on how many times he forgives me. And I think keeping that before our eyes, whilst it doesn't make it any easier, we realize, do you know what? We're happy to receive, 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 receive forgiveness because we stumble and fall many times. And the Lord is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness when we do stumble. And yet, that is the standard for our lives too. That we forgive when somebody maybe does something a tenth time. That we don't wipe our hands and say that's it, but we forgive. Because we remember what God has forgiven us of and how much he has given us, forgiven us. And here's the thing, forgiven people forgive people. When we've received forgiveness, we know it's really important to give forgiveness out. And it's a challenge and it's a struggle, but that's the Christ life. This is the narrow road, okay? Not everyone goes on this road because it's not easy. Because it means, like we talked about in the beginning of the Beatitudes, and that's why I love the order of this, because the order of this actually enables us to do this. We have to be broken in spirit where we recognize, I need you, God. We have to mourn. We have to be grieved because we understand what our sin has done in our lives and what we are capable of. Then, beyond that, after we grieve, I've forgotten it now. Hold on, just gone back, it slipped my mind. We have to be broken. And that's what I wanted to say. Brokenness is about submission. Brokenness is about taking our cross and following him. And this is one of these cross moments. Forgiveness is a cross moment that we will come to in our lives. And we will come across it repeatedly. And yet we have to choose the narrow road, the road less traveled and say, well, God, you said that you want me to forgive. I've now got your DNA in me, your nature in me. So I choose to submit to your will and I choose to allow my life to be controlled by you. I love how Paul sums up this whole idea of this Christ in our, uh, and this in our lives. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, 
rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. That is the Christ life. His life outworked through our lives. The sixth beautiful attitude or characteristic that is to come from our lives is that we are to be pure. Verse 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Notice Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are pure in language or blessed are those who are pure in action. We often get caught up in the externals, in the outward. And the Pharisees at the time, the religious at the time, they were there as well. They liked the idea of blessed are the pure, as long as the statement stopped right there, because they were resident experts in outward purity. They had innumerable, innumerable rules and regulations about what they ate, about what they wore, about how far they could walk on the Sabbath, and so on. If they were to do a test, they would score A plus on the outward purity level. But they failed with inward purity. To them, this beatitude would have read something like, blessed are the outwardly clean, for they shall see God. Yet Jesus turns the tables on what the Pharisees were um, talking about, how the Pharisees lived their lives. And Jesus said, purity is not just skin deep. It is purity from the inside out. Don't be so concerned about having all the externals together because Jesus sees beyond that right into the very core of our being. Listen to what Jesus talks about in Matthew 23 concerning this. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like religious people. But inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus was not tiptoeing through the tulips when he was talking to the Pharisees. He called it for what it was. And I love that about Jesus. He calls things for what it is. He presents our sin before us because we're great at gift wrapping it. We're great at gift wrapping our achievements, gift wrapping our externals and saying, look at me, God, I'm so amazing. And he's like, no, I'm not interested in all of that superficial bump. What's in your heart? Because purity means a lot to God. 
It ranks really high, so high that it's actually in this message on the Sermon of the Ma- and the Mount. That's how important it is. So what does it mean to be pure of heart? Well, pure has two basic meanings. Firstly, it means to be unmixed, unalloyed, and, and unadulterated. Something that is pure is not mixed or joined with anything. So what does that mean for us and our relationship with Jesus? It means that we don't have our feet in two camps. We don't have a double allegiance. Often we want to serve the Lord and follow the world at the same time. But being pure of heart, Jesus is actually saying that he wants us to be utterly sincere and not divided in our devotion and our commitment to God. God doesn't want to share our hearts. A husband and wife are to have eyes for each other only. And as soon as their eyes begin to wander somewhere else, there's trouble ahead. God doesn't want to share our hearts with other things, other ideas, other things that we place before him. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Ranks really high on God's list of things, hey? And look at the trouble the children of Israel got into throughout the Old Testament by not following that first commandment. And Jesus continues to warn us, his disciples in the New Testament as well, to warn us about our hearts being divided when we follow after other things beyond just him. Later on in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns us in Matthew 6 by saying, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So there you go. In, trans- in terms of our heart, God actually says that money can be in an allegiance that we can tie ourselves to, which is highly prized in the world and the culture in which we live, but it can be a master to us. And we can devote ourselves to it and try to devote ourselves to God and it doesn't work because Jesus says you can't have two masters. You'll hate one and love the other or vice versa. One master. Our master is to be God. So we have to really think about the things that we place up as gods in our lives. Is it money? Is it our career? Is it bettering ourselves? What are the things that we would raise up and elevate and place it in equal equal ranking to God and devote ourselves to? Because God says he wants us pure in heart, undivided, set apart for him and him alone, in our desire for him and our commitment to him. James 1.8 says this about a double-minded man. James says we're unstable in all our ways. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. And they are unstable in everything they do. That's why God doesn't want us to have double allegiance, because we become unstable. And God hasn't given his life. Jesus hasn't laid down his life for you and I so that we walk through this earth unstable in all our ways. No, that is not the path that he set before. That's not why he died. 
There should be no instability in our lives because our feet are planted in him on the firm foundation, the rock in which we stand. But that's what happens when we're divided in our loyalty. We are left unstable and really it's not a great place to be in. But the thing is about this whole idea of purity of heart, every beatitude comes back to the fact that we can't do this in our own strength. This can only happen with, by devotion to Jesus, by the Holy Spirit living in us, and he transforms our heart. And we have to allow our heart to remain supple in his hands and not go wandering off like sheep. The Bible likens us to sheep. What sheep? They, they wander. Jesus knows that we wander. That's why he's put it here to help us. To say, do you know what? I know this is a struggle for you. But this is actually the higher way of, my, of the thinking. This is the higher road that he calls us to live in. He doesn't allow our hearts to become the ceiling of where we live. But no, Jesus challenges us to a higher way of thinking, to a new way of thinking. And he says, you can do this. It won't be in your own strength, but you can do this through the power of the Holy Spirit that's in work in you. And that's what we're called to, to be pure in heart. Secondly, the word pure means clean. The outflow of our lives comes from the abundance of our hearts. Luke 6 says this, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you says flows from what is in your heart. In ancient Greek, the phrase pure of heart has the idea of straightness, of integrity, honesty, and clarity. Our purity of heart governs the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we treat others. It impacts every area of our lives. And that's why Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. So how do we cultivate a pure heart within our lives? Well, Philippians 4 is a great example of how we can start. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. If we think on those things, then we will find that that will become the way that we think, the way that we act. And I love what it says in Psalm 119.9. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying the word. Simple as, hey? <laughs> Simple as. That's how we be pure. Obey his word. Fix our eyes on good things that are pure, pure and honest and trustworthy and wholesome. That's how we can live pure. So the seventh beatitude is be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. We can't live in peace unless we have found peace, can we? And we find our peace when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And in finding this beautiful gift of salvation and in a relationship with Jesus, he becomes our God. And he becomes the source of our inner peace. 
And that is amazing, to lay our heads on the pillow at night. It is no small thing. And have peace in your heart because we know that we have a God that loves us and we know where our future lies in him. But for us as believers, this is not the final destination for us. This is just the beginning of a fantastic journey that Jesus calls us to. Have you ever wondered, what is my purpose? What does God want me to do? Well, I think the scripture outlines it quite clearly and gives us a powerful insight into what our purpose and meaning is on here and earth. We are to be called peacemakers. We are to be peacemakers. So what does that mean? What's next? Because the, here it doesn't say, blessed are those who live in peace. But rather, blessed are peacemakers. There's feet to this. This is not about just sitting down and basking in what God has done. This is a call to action. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying we're not to be content with a place of personal peace. This scripture has breadth and depth, but we are to actively seek to bring about peace in the lives of other people as well. So how does this look on a daily basis? We're all used to getting dressed, aren't we, every day? And I don't know about you, but I think about what I've got ahead of me in the day and I pick my outfit accordingly. Is it going to be a, ha a day to slouch in joggers because I'm at home? Do I need to wear uniform for work or for school? Am I going out with somebody I want to I dress a bit smarter? I pick my outfit according to the occasion that's going to meet me that day. Well, when we become followers of Jesus, not only does he change us on the inside, giving us a new nature and his DNA, he also provides us with a new wardrobe as well. And we often refer to that as the armor of God. And he says that we are to put on this new wardrobe every day as we walk out this life. And as part of this new wardrobe, we get new footwear. And this is what Ephesians 6 says, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. So what does this mean? This means that we get to be peacemakers by sharing the gospel with other people. The message of peace that we received, we now get to share this with other people so that people can find peace for themselves through a relationship with God. This is how Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. And God has given to us this task of reconciling people to him. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for God when we plead, come back to God. So we get to be peacemakers when we share our faith with Jesus and when we let other people know about Jesus. Perhaps prior to coming into relationship with God, perhaps you always found yourself in contention with other people. You were always in strife. Maybe you were always in the midst of an argument. Something was always kicking off. Yeah, I love that Jesus gives us a change of wardrobe and a real clear purpose. And he doesn't say anything about the strife that's going to follow our lives anymore. But he says that we're to make peace by sharing the gospel with others. And to God, this is a beautiful thing. 
Because the Bible actually says, Jesus, it's part of the commission, isn't it? To go into all the world and preach the gospel. And in Isaiah 52, we read a scripture which is also then mirrored in Romans 10. And it says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. We are to share this message of peace. Reconciling other people with God. We're also to bring peace in our relationships. There is nothing worse than living in strife and contention. Nelson Mandela once said, it takes a long time to make peace. A short time to make tension. Many, many people make tension. Few people make peace. Wherever you find tension, you must make peace. Our calling is to live the way that Christ has designed for us. And that is to live in love towards one another, which is his great commandment. And for us to allow the fruits of the Spirit to permeate through our lives. The fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And when we allow these beautiful attributes, these beautiful fruits to flow from our lives, we will be people who make peace. We will be people that won't be in the center of contention, but we will be people through our words and our actions that try to bring together people to make peace and to build bridges between them. James 3 says this, but the wisdom from above is first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. There is a great blessing to being a peacemaker. Sharing the gospel and helping to bring peace within our relationships and helping others to live in peace. The eighth and final beatitude we're going to look at today is be expectant. Verse 10. Hmm. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution is not a nice thing to talk about, if I'm honest. But we need to talk about it because it is here. So why is this persecution happening? Well, Jesus is basically saying in a nutshell that when you live the, the previous seven attributes and when they come from your life, that the reward of that is persecution. <laughs> Things are going to heat up for us. God, be honest, it doesn't make sense, does it? You'd think that by living the life of Christ, that actually we would be admired by the world. Being sold out for Jesus, living a life of humility, of love, of kindness, of compassion, being a lover of peace. These are all things that benefit other people greatly. People are on the receiving end of all these amazing things that God is working out in our lives. And yet... Jesus says we're going to be persecuted for it. Corinthians says this. Now he uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. 
Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are like a life-giving perfume. Becoming, um, becoming more like Christ is like a smell of death to those who are walking in darkness. And they are offended by it. And that's why they persecute us. And we just need to understand it. And we need to understand that people aren't going to treat us badly because we've done something wrong. But they're going to treat us badly because we've done something right. So don't stop doing something right because you get consequences you don't like. This is how um, it's, uh, Jesus speaks in John 15. It says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as its own if you belong to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master since they persecuted me. Naturally, they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They do all of this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. Jesus knows that this is a tough road to travel. And we can see that because in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew 5, he begins to personalize things for us. In the previous verses, Jesus says, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are hungry. But here in the next two verses, he speaks to us directly. He says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all these kind of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way that they persecuted the prophets um, who were there before you. Jesus personalizes this for us because he knows it's going to get tough and he knows it's tough but he wants to encourage us and I love how he actually directs us as to how we are to react towards persecution. We are to rejoice and be glad. <laughs> wow, that's going to be fun, isn't it? But do you know what? That's what Jesus says that we can do. That we have to choose when persecution comes from living the right way. We have to choose to rejoice and be glad. We have to allow what God has done in us. And we have to open our mouth and say, Lord, I will follow you. And even though this is tough, your way is supreme. And I am therefore going to rejoice and be glad that I have been counted and marked like you in this world. We are to rejoice and be glad. Don't be despondent. Don't go weeping tears. No, rejoice and be glad. Because we are following in the footsteps of our Lord and our Savior. I'll be honest. Reading the Beatitudes, I have read them with a deep sense of challenge. But I've also come away with a great sense of expectancy. I'm challenged because Jesus strips everything back. He challenges my thinking, my perspective, my priorities and my actions. In reality, each character trait that Jesus talks about is a contradiction to the society in which we live. 
and the society and things that the society holds dear. The world that we live in focuses on me, myself, and I. And what can I do to make myself happy? Through relationships, through education, through accumulating things from achieving success. Yet these don't feature at all in the blessed life that Jesus talks about here in Matthew 5. Why? Because Jesus knows that all those things lead to a la onto a road of emptiness and they don't provide fulfillment. George Michael, famous, had wealth, had possessions, had everything that this world would class as achieving as something and yet he wrote the lyrics. Well, it looks like a road to heaven, but it feels like the road to hell. That is what searching after the world's blessings leads us. That's why there is no beatitude in here that says, blessed are those who look after number one. Rather, each beatitude focuses on either God or on others or a combination of the both. And God has designed it like that way because he actually says that we will find great fulfillment and blessing when we stop living for ourselves. When we stop hungering and thirsting for wealth and position and status and fame and money in the bank and big houses and nice things. Jesus says what matters most is not about what we have or what we do, but it's about who we are. So I'm challenged by that, but I come away with a great sense of expectancy because Jesus opens up and shows me what I can become through the Holy Spirit living inside of me. And he says, you and I can live like this. He's not setting us up to fail. He's not giving us this list of things that we trip up and fall and then feel bad. No, he's saying you can do this because of the power of the spirit that works and lives within us. Our heart's desire is to become more like him. And in obeying the teachings of Jesus, we're challenged every day by the way that we live. And we get a sense of expectancy about the blessings that we receive as we live out this Jesus lifestyle. And regarding the blessings, we talked about it last week. Jesus says blessed a lot of times in that passage. He starts off every sentence with blessed because he really does mean it. He pronounces blessing on us. He says we are blessed, but I want to just say this about blessing just so we have it all in perspective. This blessing is both for now and the future. And it's really important for us to remember because sometimes we only filter things through the lens of the here and now what's happening here on earth and we can forget that God has given us another lens to look through and that is the lens of eternity the future hope that we have laid up for us this is not the final destination on earth okay we are just passing through we are citizens on a journey going to another world and in Matthew 5 Jesus actually talks about these two perspectives if you look at Matthew 5 
first beatitude and the last beatitude, he actually says the blessing that comes from being poor in spirit and being persecuted. And it says this, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He repeats this phrase twice. No other time in the beatitudes does he repeat the blessing that comes. But he tops and tails the beatitudes with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is written in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means that Jesus is saying when you are poor in spirit and when you are broken, that right now we are part of the kingdom of heaven. This is for us now on earth. He doesn't say you'll have it in the future. We are presently part of the kingdom. But then we go on to read the remaining six beatitudes and the tense changes. He all of a sudden begins talking in a future tense. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit. They shall be filled. They shall obtain mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. What does that mean? It means that as we walk out our lives in Jesus, we may not see the full extent of the blessings that are laid up for us here on earth. But we are not to become despondent in that because we are blessed. We may have partly received comfort now. We may partly see God doing stuff, but it's not necessarily the fullness of what God has laid up for us because there is more. There is more ahead. So I think it's great that we not get discouraged if we don't see the so-called blessings here and now. I was so encouraged when I read of a 17-year-old boy in an interview with the Bishop of Maidstone, the age of one, he fell down the stairs and he broke his back and shattered it. And at 17, he was being interviewed. He had spent a total of 13 years already of his life in hospital. And when he was asked, do you think that is fair? The boy replied, God has eternity to make it up to me. <laughs> what a perspective. This is not the final destination. There is blessing ahead of us. We've got so much to be excited and expectant for. So I want to encourage you to live the Jesus lifestyle. I want to live this for my life day in, day out. I want this to be what comes from me that permeates through every pore of my being because this is what Jesus has outlaid for us and outlined and said, you can have this. So let's choose and make a decision today and each day that we are going to live according to the Beatitudes. Amen? Amen. Amen. Team, you can come up right now. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is life to us. It satisfies us. It fills us. It challenges us, Lord. And Lord, we want to live this lifestyle, this Jesus lifestyle. So Lord, help us. Every day we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.